and welcome to yet another episode of Earth 911's Sustainability in Your Ear, the podcast conversation about accelerating the transition to a sustainable carbon neutral society. I am your host, Mitch Ratcliffe. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Homelessness has been on the rise in the United States since 2015. As of 2022, a Department of Housing and Urban Development survey found that more than 582,000 people were living on the streets, about 18 people out of every 10,000 Americans. Getting off the street requires being connected to wireless services with all the technology that involves from a mobile phone, which about 70% of the homeless do actually have, to getting access to chargers and information to find resources, treatment for medical and addiction issues, and to apply for work. Today, we welcome back Zach Clark. He's the founder and executive director of the Home More Project in San Francisco. The Home More Project has distributed a unique solar-powered backpack, the Makeshift Traveler, which features a built-in charging station and comes packed with an AM-FM radio, rechargeable flashlight, sleeping bag, and other necessities. We first talked to Zach back in January 2022, and at that time, he was in college, and the Makeshift Traveler was a prototype. But today, the organization has delivered hundreds of backpacks and has extended the program to other parts of California. In March, they completed their first government contract, delivering 60 makeshift travelers that were distributed to homeless veterans by the Veterans Administration in Palo Alto, California. You can learn more about the Home More Project and its makeshift traveler backpack at thehomemoreproject.org. The Home More Project is all one word, no space, no dash thehomemoreproject.org. Now let's connect with the Home More Project to find out how it has evolved. Welcome back to the show, Zach. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Well, it's great to have you back. When we first talked, you were a University of San Francisco student working as a full-time volunteer with more than 60 interns who contributed to the design and production of the makeshift traveler. Congratulations on your recent graduation. How's the Home More Project changed and how's it going to continue to grow while you're in grad school in Los Angeles? Yeah, thank you, Mitch. Uh, happy to be here. And yeah, so I finished uh, at the University of San Francisco last Saturday, and my undergrad was in uh, international business and marketing. And so I like to think that that sort of helped me learn that perspective of launching an organization. Um, and now I'm going on to UCLA to do a master's in urban planning. Um, I consider myself, I've been working full-time for a few years, uh, just without the pay part. So, <laughs> um, you know, we, our priorities just quite frankly, have not been to pay me. Uh, we've mm -hmm. been starting to compensate other people. Uh, of course, building an organization has other overhead costs and trying to grow our program. So um, our priorities haven't been <laughs> to pay me up to this point. So how many volunteers are working on the program? <laughs> Yeah, so our volunteers, I like to always break down our volunteers by including our board, including our internship program. So our board right now is about 12. Uh, our internship program at one point was up to 60, 70 interns. Uh, right now, we've condensed it down to 20 as we shift into looking at part-time and full-time people later this year. And then we have a, I call an accessible volunteer base of about 75. So these are people that have reached out. They're you know, geographically located in the Bay Area, and they're willing and able to volunteer uh, with 
short time notice. So you have actually got that makeshift traveler backpack out there. It was an idea last time. It was a prototype last time. How has it performed? Is it, is it working up to your expectations and doing what you hoped it would? Yeah, I mean, the as as you mentioned, the you know one of the core points of the traveler is the solar panel, the ability to charge a cell phone, other devices, and to stay connected to services and family. And so I think a lot of our focus when developing it was focused on perfecting that technology aspect of the pack and maybe some quality control of other aspects of the pack weren't up to standard. And so earlier this year, after we had distributed about 100 packs uh, in sort of a testing period from October to December last year, uh, earlier this year, we discovered that our zippers were breaking. Mm -hmm. and. You know, I don't know if you ever had a backpack that doesn't have an operating zipper, but you basically don't have a backpack. Yeah, it's not a backpack. So, <laughs> yeah. So we <clears throat> spent about three months from January to April working with the sewing company, fixing the other 250 units that we had already made. And, you know, that aside, there's many positive stories, which I'm sure I'll get into. But that was a big challenge that we had to face uh, this year. Well, that's a realistic and and and, and predictable thing. It's a, a product has flaws, and 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 so would you describe what you have done now as a V two of makeshift traveler? And and are there anything, any other capabilities added besides the new zipper? Uh, yeah. So pretty much our philosophy was we just wanted to make sure that these units we had made could be used, you know, up to standard when we give them out right now. So we've yet to make another purchase order. Uh, we're planning to do that in July. And the next unit will, you know, obviously have much improved zipper systems. Um, it will also have a, um, uh, the, the USB port will also be able to be charged uh, through an outlet. So there's a battery pack in the uh, backpack. Oh. And... Right now, the only way to charge that is through the sun. Right. Um, but occasionally, people do get access to charging ports, so we want to give that opportunity to them. Um, so, so now that it's in the field, can you tell us how a makeshift traveler changes a person who's unhoused? How does it change their life? I mean, and for instance, I, I, I was following the story of, uh, of Thomas, who moved from the streets to a home in just a few months after getting his makeshift traveler. What's the experience of getting one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll start with the Thomas story uh, because it's, it's entirely different from the people that we serve on, mm -hmm. you know, the day to day. Uh, we partnered with a agency in San Luis Obispo, California earlier this year, and we gave them 20 packs to give to their community. Um, and San Luis Obispo is a very rural area, and often the people experiencing homeless there are living along creeks, they're living in the woods. Um, so outreach, you know, is kind of a little bit like hiking and looking for encampments. Yeah. And so there's a few benefits for our product in that environment. Um, you know, as I, we may have, we may touch on later, but theft is a enormous issue within the community and you know people will fall asleep all their stuff is gone when they wake up and so we've had 
you know, a lot of our packs stolen. Um, mm. And so in a area that's rural and much more spread out, um, you know, it's, it's, it's that is a, a non-issue. Uh, the other thing is, you know, Thomas had been homeless for, I believe it was three years. And one of the biggest challenges for him is he could never keep his phone charged because he was living along a creek bed. And so the only way to communicate with him is they would do outreach uh, every couple of weeks and, you know, update his, his case. And so when he got his makeshift traveler, he was able to constantly charge his phone. And then, you know, that connection was the bridge that he needed to get into housing. Now, another example is a couple living on the street uh, named Q and Michaela. Tell us about how they've been using their makeshift travelers. Yeah, so Q and Michaela, uh, we connected with in March, and they actually live in a a vehicle. So they have not yet transitioned into, I guess, the the negative side would be a tent, the positive side into a housing unit. Um, Their case is particularly interesting because they, um, couples that are experiencing homelessness often are not welcomed into shelter together. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're separated. And so, you know, they have chosen to decline many offers to be into shelter for that very reason. Um, but for our makeshift traveler, uh, they do, uh, they bike around the city a lot and do odd jobs. And so they've actually used their pack as a way to transport uh, tools and other, um, you know, other belongings. So there's a... Well, so now, now that you've got them in production, are you are you starting to look at ways to reduce the cost of of producing one so that you can get more of these out? And and what kind of progress are you seeing there? Yeah. So when we when we initially developed and went through the manufacturing process, it was in uh, just at the tail end of uh, the height of of COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. and so a lot of prices were increased. Um, Per unit, the last production run was about $104.15. We anticipate the next round to be around $95. Um, but the $95 actually also includes uh, many iterations you know, mm-hmm. that I mentioned. Um, and a few that I didn't mention, I think the, the solar panel will have a cover. Um, we'll have dividers in the pack. So right now it's kind of just like sort of like a pit, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, we'll have dividers. And we're actually looking to condense the size of the outer shell a little bit, uh, make it more. Uh, right now, the edges are a little rough. So if you bang into someone, it probably isn't the most comfortable. Well, now, you, you, you have done one project where you, you sold some of these to the Palo Alto Veterans Administration Hospital. Have groups been contacting you uh, about bringing makeshift traveler to other states and, and communities? Yeah, we get a lot of inquiries. Um, it's kind of interesting navigating like who's people are a bit vague when they reach out because I hmm. they don't know if they're we are going to sell them to them or they mm-hmm. want us to donate to them. But you know, our philosophy has always been to serve as many people as we can serve, especially with a pack like that. So um if government agencies are willing to to support our organization. Um, you know, that just in turn supports more packs that we're able to uh, eventually deliver. 
So, so what's, what is the relationship? When, uh, for instance, how did the, the VA in Palo Alto work with you? Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, working with the government is a pretty interesting experience. It was pretty, uh, you know, as people can imagine, pretty bureaucratic. Like it was very to the point, uh, we want 60 units. We sent them what we're willing to sell them for. And they checked it off. It was about a two-month process of being vendorized. Um, but yeah, it was very simple. And I think it alludes to a, a how a lot of organizations are able to go from grassroots to being large scale. Mm-hmm. is just doing working with agencies like that. I want to get into more of that. Let's take a quick commercial break. We're going to be right back to continue the discussion. Now let's get back to the discussion with Zach Clark, founder and executive director of the Home More Project in San Francisco, which distributes the high-tech backpack, the makeshift traveler to homeless people to connect them with vital services. So you described yourself when we last talked as naive about fundraising in San Francisco. What have you learned about how to stand up and get funding for a project like this that's dedicated to a dire social challenge like homelessness? Yeah, I mean... You know, I would say that I was naive when we first connected. I have the awareness of what to do now. And hopefully the next time we talk, I can say that I was successful at at doing this. Um, It's really challenging. Uh, And, you know, a lot of there are hundreds of nonprofits, even in such a small region like San Francisco. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite challenging. What we've tried to do is break up our board into three main committees that mm-hmm. outline ways that we fundraise as an organization. So the first being individual relations. So this is day-to-day donors that would find us through social media, um, uh, website, things like that. We have corporate relations, uh, which focuses on you know, foundation grants, trusts, uh, corporate social responsibility. And then we have government affairs, and that's pretty self-explanatory, government contracts, government grants. So I think in the future, we aim for the government uh, government affairs committee to make up anywhere from 60 to 70% of our total funding. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's about five. So um, I think that's where we have a lot of room to grow. So what's your advice for somebody who's thinking about launching a nonprofit? I mean, you, you did it in school. What would you suggest to somebody as a first few steps to understand the challenge and tackle it? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is deciding, of course, how you're going to separate yourself from all the other nonprofits that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the assumption would be if you're starting a nonprofit, you probably know what the focus of the organization is going to be. And then secondly, you know, it's not always the most fun thing to chat about, but you have to understand what the financials and the revenue model is. Um, you know, I think a lot of times we mistake nonprofit for non-revenue yeah. and, you know, nonprofits, just like a for-profit, just like a VC firm, anything else, you have to generate revenue to cover basic costs and, and grow the organization. Um, and I think lastly, I always like talking about this with, with other 
you know, people on different sides of the spectrum, but, you know, understanding the relationship between the end user and then the spender. Um, like in for-profits, this is usually the same person, unless it's a gift. But in nonprofits, your end user is not the spender. And so finding that relationship between what does the spender want to see, what does the end user want to see, and then trying to merge that into uh, something. Yeah, I, I, I agree that, that that client relationship in, in the public setting is so important. But the, the funder, if it's the government, that's a citizen. If it's, an, if it's a private entity, it's not a citizen. So what is the relationship? And those, those are very complicated roads to to travel <laughs> what did you learn what did you learn about the relationship between donors and and the homeless yeah i mean i i share an example just of kind of a, a moral dilemma that i have every time i go out into the community and actually mm-hmm. today uh, we're going to a safe sleeping site in uh, the mission district in san francisco and we're giving about 15 packs to people that are sleeping in tents there. And the person that's helping me on our team is our videographer. And we have a goal to create a new updated short promotional video. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's this moral dilemma between, you know, helping these people and then trying to showcase it in a video form because that's what people supporting you want to see. Right. But it's not always the easiest, like, oh, by the way, can we interview you and film you um, when you're at a vulnerable state? Well, and it almost represents some kind of a quid pro quo, which is not what you want to introduce, the, the idea that you have to do this to get this. Uh, and it could be perceived that way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we've even experienced that many times before that, you know, people will be in a waiting line mm-hmm. to come up and eat with us and get a pack. And we like to get pictures of people and share their story on our website. But, you know, people will kind of come up and if I have to get a picture, I I don't think, you know, I I don't want to get a picture. It's always totally fine. Like, that's okay. So, yeah, it's just this, it's the day and age that we live in, right? Everything has to be showcased because if we aren't showcasing our work, then are you really doing anything? You know, it's it's hard to know. It's the, it's the, if there, no one was there to hear the tree fall, did it make a sound problem? <laughs> Social media, blessing and a curse. Uh, now you have a you have a, a transitional program to help people move into a shelter and ultimately into work and a home. How's that continued to evolve? You know, it it, it was very aggressive. Uh, Twenty seven steps when we talked last year. Where are you with that today? Well, people convinced me to eliminate the branding of 27 steps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that is pretty aggressive. It's overbearing for a lot of people to understand. But I think what I wanted to convey with that messaging is to address someone experiencing homelessness entirely, mm-hmm. it does take a lot of different steps. And we've since called it our transitional housing program as we wait to decide on what the next or hopefully the final name will be for that. Um, But that program is still very much in its development. Uh, We have numerous documents supporting uh, research that uh, we're willing to share with people that are interested, but a lot of that is just kept internal right now. As admittedly, most of our focus of 
has been on the makeshift traveler program that we just launched. Now you can't can think of the makeshift traveler as, as a platform, a technology platform, and you can layer services on top of something like that. Have you explored adding payments uh, or or work programs or additional technology to support other connections to social services on top of the capabilities of the makeshift traveler? Yeah, I think we've scratched the surface of that. Um, when I when we connect with people, as I mentioned, we take a picture, we put them up on our blog if they want to, and then we share their stories. But the headline uh, almost always is their name and then their previous occupation. And you know, I think that employability is one aspect of someone getting out of homelessness, but it could be the primary reason that someone does, and we've seen that. And so I think. I say that we scratch the surface because we have the ability on our website for people to see previous employability and then also be able to donate if they're interested. Um, but has that happened yet? No. Okay. <laughs> but I think that it's it's certainly a possibility. And a, and a lot of the people that we meet are, you know, former like hands-on type of jobs, construction, plumbing, and these are skills that while may have you know decreased a little bit can certainly be revamped so i think that that's a, a huge opportunity for people to re-enter working when when we when we also talked last year you you spoke about the importance of small businesses role in in getting the homeless some assistance and san francisco almost more than any other city in the country has been really hard, harshly impacted by the pandemic is the city coming back and do you see those small businesses and government tuning into the problem and contributing to solutions to the homeless problem? Yeah, I think to answer the first part, uh, the city's not coming back. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the, the organizations that we work with and both, you know, government agencies and whatnot, I think they'll acknowledge that it'll be a few years before San Francisco looks somewhat similar to what it was pre-pandemic. Um, and a lot of that, I think, is just the <clears throat> nature of the economic cycle of when you go into such a downturn of the city, uh, you know, it, it takes time to bounce back and the businesses circulate. And so I, I think we're a few years away from from it, it being like that. But um, yeah, I mean, the the unique part about it is there's new restaurants that are always popping up and, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting time to be here. And do you see business recognizing that part of their engagement with the community involves their addressing the homeless problem on the streets in front of their, their storefront? I would say that it's become pretty divided uh, where mm -hmm. most of the small businesses kind of are just looking at the government to fix the issue. And, you know, I mean, we had, I think it was fall of last year, uh, the entire Tenderloin formed a co coalition and about 160 businesses, you know, refused to, to pay taxes. Um, I don't know what the outcome of that was. I'm guessing they ended up paying them. But um, but so I think we're, we're seeing a little bit of pushback from small businesses. Well, you know, society is a team sport. 
Mm-hmm. What, what, what are the three or four critical steps you suggest that we take to prevent homelessness in the first place and, and to help those people who do end up on the street? Yeah, I mean, I always, I always like to separate these types of questions into two, two separate groups. And, you know, there's a population of those experiencing homelessness that are, you know, severely addicted and they need help that someone who's experiencing homelessness for employment or economic reasons may not need. And so addressing those two different groups is, looks entirely different. Um, speaking to the, the economic reasons, you know, I think it all starts with uh, just a connection and a relationship. And, you know, I, I challenge people to just communicate with those that are homeless like they would anyone else. And, you know, we talk about housing first, and I always like to say people first, like it, it, mm-hmm. it starts with a connection and some sort of trust. So I think that, you know, the first step in any of it is recognizing people who are unhoused as individuals that have gone through a series of challenges that have led them to this. And mm-hmm. we need to, to communicate with them like anyone else. Um, and I think addressing the other side, you know, it's tricky. Um, I mean, harm reduction has been a big part of uh, addressing those uh, suffering from addiction in recent years. I think that it's like any other program, it's experienced some great success. It's also had a lot of great failure. Um, and interestingly enough, actually yesterday, uh, Mayor Breed announced that, that they would begin ar- arresting people that were uh, openly using. So. I think it's it's a very complex uh, situation that needs to be looked at independent of just housing. Well, you're hitting on a really important thing when you you talk about recognizing recognizing these people as individuals. Uh, how we define who we are is very important. That's what we're talking about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion is is the definition of we. And we tend to think of of the homeless as not part of society. Uh, in fact, I probably used some language which would reinforce that perspective. Uh, sorry about that. Um, if, if we were to help these people, based on the experience you've had working with them, help them systematically, what kinds of value and creativity could we unlock? Could we solve some problems by bringing these people into our bigger we? Totally. Yeah, I think, you know, my favorite thing when I connect with people is just learning about their interests or learning about mm-hmm. their hobbies. And, you know, I, I've met so many people that are incredibly talented from artists to musicians, um, a lot of interests that don't necessarily directly translate to economic success, mm-hmm. but they're valuable in, in many different ways to society. And so, you know, looking at how can someone who's unhoused but makes incredible art, how can we leverage their art as a way to connect with people and get out of homelessness? So I think there's there's so much creativity and value. And, you know, as I've said so many times, it's not like the people who are actually experiencing homelessness, it's tragic. And that's a huge part of yeah. the equation. But it's also you and me, right? It's also the the, the tourists that come here. It's also the small businesses, right? I think we're all invested in helping these people, helping the situation. And, you know, it's undoubtedly, uh, we don't hurt anyone 
by helping these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's only up from here. So um, that, that again, an important perspective: the idea that we don't hurt anyone by helping these folks is, is critical because there's this kind of they're taking from us perspective that's argued from the other side of the conversation. And and what we're also doing is raising all boats in, in the more traditional sense that we the United States in, invested in in the mid-century, last century. Your project is so important. How can listeners support Home More and, and where can they do that? Yeah, <clears throat> I always say if you want to financially support us, you can go to the homemoreproject.org, mm-hmm. um, big donate button on the right. And then if you want to support us ideas or feedback on our programs you can go to the homewareproject.org as well and and reach out to us and let us know your thoughts um i'm really big on involving other people into our program so i uh, would love the feedback i also noticed that you can do an amazon smile opt-in to support home more now so that part of your purchases go there is that is that something that you recommend people do totally <clears throat> excuse me yeah we'd love uh amazon smile gofundme there's a lot of unique ways to, to contribute to us. Yeah. Zach, again, great work and, and fantastic to see the progress that you've made. Good luck in grad school. Thank you, Mitch. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Zach Clark, founder and executive director of the Home More Project in San Francisco. You can learn more about the program and donate to support the delivery of more makeshift traveler backpacks at thehomemoreproject.org. The Home More Project is all one word, no space, no dash, thehomemoreproject.org. And if you haven't designated an organization to support when shopping on Amazon, consider choosing the Home More Project as your Amazon Smile charity. It It will do good, folks. The plight of the homeless, who often become unmoored from their family and community because they cannot afford the digital connectivity on which our modern economy is built, can be instructive for those of us who are thinking about sustainability, too. As Zach mentioned, how we define our community, who we count as part of the we that must be considered and cared for when making economic and political decisions, is critical to building an inclusive prosperity. The sustainability disconnect for many of us is that they do not see themselves as part of nature, but separate from it. And that choice blinds us to many of the factors that contribute to climate change. When we can find empathy for people who are struggling with homelessness, addiction, or mental issues, we can widen the discussion and think about systemic changes that could help prevent the plight affecting almost 600,000 Americans. And that humanizing step could also be applied to opening the mental door to seeing, for instance, endangered species and wilderness that is at uh, risk of being lost as important co-residents on a small planet with limited resources. Understanding and empathy are keys to our ability to change. The Home More Project is one more example among many of how seeing new paths to solving the poly crisis affecting our world can be transformative. Folks, I hope you'll take a moment to share this podcast or any of the more than 400 interviews that we've done on sustainability in your ear with your friends, family, and coworkers. If you take a moment to write a review on your favorite podcast platform, that will make all the difference in the world in helping them find us. Please tell everyone that you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, or any of the other fine purveyors of podcast goodness you might know or prefer. Thank you so much for your support. 
I'm Mitch Ratcliffe. This is Earth 911, and we will be back with another innovator interview soon. In the meantime, folks, take care of yourself, take care of one another, and let's all take care of this beautiful planet of ours. Have a green day. Thank you.